It's Tuesday, May 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has warned Iran not to threaten the U.S. again, or it will face its official end. This happened shortly after a rocket landed near the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Iran quickly responded with a hashtag, hashtag never threaten an Iranian. The U.S. has deployed bombers and an aircraft carrier to the area as Iran has increased its uranium enrichment production. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico, joins us to discuss the rising tensions with Iran. Next, is revenge porn considered free speech? The Illinois Supreme Court has heard arguments on whether the state's revenge porn law violates freedom of speech after a woman sent nude photos of her husband's mistress to friends and family as an example for why the marriage went bad. Deanna Paul, a former sex crimes prosecutor, joins us to discuss revenge porn laws. Finally, now that Game of Thrones is over, has Appointment TV officially ended? Will there ever be another show that you have to make time to watch when it airs? Or have streaming services and social media changed the way we watch TV forever? My producer Miranda joins us to discuss if we'll ever all watch a show together again. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, we're right now dealing with Iran, and they put out so many false messages that Iran is totally confused. I don't know. That might be a good thing. Joining us now is Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Let's talk about Iran, the uh, increased tension that is going on right now. The president just was exchanging some words over Twitter telling Iran, basically, do not threaten the United States or I will make it your official end. And Iran's foreign minister quickly responded back in kind, saying, hashtag never threaten an Iranian. Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now. There's this tense kind of back and forth right now between the Iranian leaders and President Trump on his Twitter feed. And it's very strange because President Trump recently has been trying to calm things down. He has said things like, I want Iran to call me. I just want to talk right. to them. He has flat out said he does not want to go to war with Iran. And yet he puts out this threat out there. And maybe it's because he was sitting there thinking, you know what, I need to be tough again. I can't seem like I'm coming across as too soft. But when you say something like, you know, this is going to be the official end of Iran, that's a pretty loaded statement. And it actually offends a lot of Iranians, uh, including like ordinary Iranians, that the Trump administration says that they want to support. Iran is a civilization that's been around for thousands of years. So saying that you're going to officially end it is, is quite the claim. And I think he might have undercut himself with a lot of ordinary Iranians. What started all of these tensions? Because we heard that there might have been some Americans that were being targeted. That's why the president sent over some bombers and some aircraft carriers to the area. But did all this stem from us being pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, I mean, the tensions have really been building up for months and months. The United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, imposed a ton of new sanctions, damaging Iran's economy. And then recently, the United States, the Trump administration announced that it was going to declare a major piece of Iran's military as a terrorist group. Now, the Iranians, you know, they've kind of been still sticking with the nuclear deal. But recently, they said they're going to take steps to reduce their commitment to the deal. They also are pretty upset about the terrorist designation of one of their major major military units. And so this has just been a, a situation where now they are apparently making moves that the U.S. feels are threatening, whereas there is also the argument that the U.S. is making moves that the Iranians feel are threatening. And so it's kind of becoming the question of like the chicken or the egg, like which came first, whose threat came first and right. which one is going to lead to what. 
Iranian officials have said that they've quadrupled their uranium enrichment production. Their uranium that they have would not uh, would still be enriched only to that 3.67% limit that was set under the nuclear deal, but they could go beyond their stockpile limitations pretty soon. How does this figure into the whole discussion? What they're hoping to do is they've given the Europeans and other parties to the deal, like Russia and China, a couple of months to find ways to ease the economic suffering that they are facing right now as a result of U.S. sanctions. So they said, look, guys, you need to help us get out of this economic mess. Otherwise, we're going to start walking away from the deal and enriching uranium and doing these other things that puts them in violation of the deal. Because the way the Iranians look at it is, look, we signed up to this deal saying we would eliminate our nuclear program so that you guys would lift economic sanctions that were already on place earlier and so our economy would improve. And so they just feel like it's become a very one-sided deal. And I just don't see how the Europeans are going to be able to pull together anything that helps Iran's economy in the next 60 days. I just don't understand how that's going to happen because European governments cannot force their businesses to do business in Iran. And that's really what it's going to take to help their economy. If the Europeans do come to some sort of deal, some type of agreement, where does the U.S. stand on this? I've seen that they're still threatening to sanction companies that import oil from Iran, things like that. So what is the U.S. going to do if they come up with some type of deal? The U.S. is taking a very much like a like a take no prisoners approach to this thing. The thing that's really interesting about the U.S. sanctions on Iran is that they target companies and governments elsewhere beyond Iran and beyond the U.S. that do business with Iran. So European companies, Chinese companies, etc., they are subject to U.S. sanctions, meaning they can't access the U.S. market if they try to do business in Iran. And if the Europeans were to find some way to get around it, I, I don't know how they're going to manage to do that, especially if they rely on the dollar as you know the exchange, the main currency. If, if they can do that, if they're going to try, I think the U.S. will have to impose sanctions on some of these European companies or, or firms, or Chinese or Russian, I should say. And if they don't, if the, if the Americans don't do that, then it kind of is like these other countries are calling the United States bluff on sanctions. But I think this administration very much is prepared to issue fines and cut off the U.S. market from some of these foreign companies just to send a message that they should not do business with Iran. How much of all this is bluster and how serious are these threats? There was a rocket that landed near the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Uh, They said that nobody was harmed and it was kind of unclear who was behind the attacks, but that's what prompted the president to tweet out, if Iran wants to fight, that will be their official end. So where are we with this? I mean, you're asking the million dollar question. How much of this is just a bunch of talk and how much of it is serious willingness to take military action against people or organizations that the U.S. think threaten Americans? Because both sides said they don't want war. The president has said that and Iranian officials have said that as well. Well, yeah, but they each also say, but if the other side does something, (laughs) you know, we will respond with military force. So the question is, who's going to go first and who's going to try to de-escalate this the best. There are efforts. They're talking to other countries. People are trying to quietly mediate and bring people off the cliff a little bit. There were also reports that there were Iranian allied militia groups that denounced and said they had nothing to do with the rocket being fired. That might be a sign of them trying to calm down tensions. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, wars can start over any number of things. And this is one of those situations where it could be some low-level guy, like accidentally firing a gun. Yeah. And, you know, next thing you know, we could have another war. And I think that's what really, really worries a lot of people. The last question I have, 
Do we have any official communications, back-channel communications with Iran? Because the president said, yeah, I want them to call me so we can negotiate something. Do we have that open line of communication? Well, the Swiss serve as our protecting power in Iran, so they've always been a channel for us to communicate with them. Officially, the Iranians do have an office with the United Nations. There's probably ways that we can get information to them. And also, it's quite possible, but I don't think they'll admit it, that the CIA probably has some sort of a, a line to Iranian intelligence that they probably don't want to make public. And that's just my guess, but it's probably a pretty smart guess. You know, but then, to be honest with you, so much of this is actually being done like in public on, on Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why do you need a back channel? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> that's one yeah. of the things that uh, continues to amaze me how a lot of this does play out there and which leads to a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings because it is playing out on Twitter instead of these official lines. So we'll monitor this because uh, I know a lot of people are very concerned. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. Given each state statute, and all of them have different varying language, some of them require an intent to harass the person, and others just require that you disseminate a photo where there is an identifiable victim and that one of her intimate parts is exposed. Joining us now is Deanna Paul, national reporter for The Washington Post and a former sex crimes prosecutor. We're going to be talking about revenge porn. Uh, This has been out there for quite some time now. There's 45 states right now that have revenge porn laws on the books. But there's a certain case in Illinois that's arguing that revenge porn is free speech, and they're saying that the laws there are unconstitutional. It has to do with a woman who's named Bethany Austin. Her and her husband were having a rough time. He was having an affair with a neighbor. She published some photos of her, some nude photos of her, and after that, she was arrested. Tell us a little more details of their specific situation and how this relates to the lawsuit that they brought forward. She was in a relationship for seven and a half years, they were engaged and she learned about this affair that was going on. They had modern technology and her iPad was linked to the iCloud that his was linked to. And everyone acknowledges that they knew this at the time. But so she received the conversations between her fiance and this neighbor, as well as nude photos of the neighbor. And when it came to them deciding to tell all of their family and friends that they were calling off the wedding, he wanted to say that it was mutually agreeable and she said she wanted to tell them the truth. The fiancé then allegedly, according to the complaint, spread rumors about his fiancé calling her crazy and saying that she doesn't cook or do house chores. And so that led him to sleeping at another woman's house. And Bethany, in response, she sent a four-page letter with attachments of the nude photos as well as the text message conversations to family and friends. And subsequently, she was arrested under an Illinois revenge foreign law, also known as non-consensual pornography. Now, the question that I have, typically we think of a revenge porn thing. It's a sextortion type of thing. We're going to put you in a bind or something. And they put the photos like on a social media platform, something like that. This was a very small occurrence. She sent it to family members, basically just saying, this is why we're breaking up. It's not like it was disseminated widely. Does that matter at all in this case? It does matter because given each state statute and all of them have different varying language, some of them require an intent to harass the person and others just require that you disseminate a photo where there is an identifiable victim and that one of her intimate parts is exposed. Illinois is one of those laws where they're arguing that she, in fact, did all of the elements that would lead a prosecutor to be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. She didn't necessarily mean it to harass the other woman. It was really to prove her husband 
been wrong. So how is Bethany arguing this, that this is free speech? I think I read that her attorney is saying that these nude photos to the husband were a gift and you don't really get a say in what happens to them after that. I mean, is that really the central tenet of what the free speech argument is? The free speech argument comes down to how a court analyzes the situation. And so they can either analyze it by looking at each individual image and determining it on a content-based analysis. But that requires a really high level of legal scrutiny and something that's very challenging for a government to show that it was that serious of an interest and that they've done it in as minimal a way as possible. The other way a court could analyze it is by looking at the interest that the state has in protecting the privacy of its citizens. And so if a court leans toward the first one, it could make it that free speech is protected by the Constitution. But if they look at it the second way, then it's likely that the court follows what other states who have brought this up to court has decided. And that would say that the government has this interest in protecting everybody's privacy, and therefore it's an acceptable restriction on free speech. It's such an intimate thing, even though it's so easy to share now. I think for most people, if you're sharing a photo with somebody, a nude, intimate photo like that, the expectation is that you don't want it to be out there. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Illinois Supreme Court will rule on this one specifically. How are these revenge porn laws doing overall? They're making their way through courts all over the place. In Texas, it's happening. In Vermont, there was something that passed also. How is this working across the country? Vermont Supreme Court ruled last year that a sexually explicit image deserves as much privacy as other forms of sensitive information like medical records or financial information. Texas has a case that is currently pending at the state's highest court. We don't know when it's going to be decided. There's no deadline for that. And there's still different agencies and people filing briefs in the case. And then we have the Illinois case, which they argued last week. And again, we don't know when the decision will come down. Deanna Paul, national reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. You're sharing in the uh, the reverie of all of it. Like, it's amazing. It's magic. You know what I mean? You would rather just be in a, in a living room by yourself? Absolutely oh, no, not. This no. is amazing. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to touch a little bit on the big event that happened over the weekend, Game of Thrones, the finale. They set an all-time record for HBO, the ratings. They drew in 13.6 million viewers for the initial airing of the series finale, but you add in replays, you add in early streaming numbers, and that figure climbs to 19.3 million. They're records for Game of Thrones and for HBO also. I mean, it was a huge cultural event almost. We're not going to talk about what happened in the show specifically. There was some more flubs. There was water bottles. People weren't happy with the way it ended. You know, there was petitions for rewrites for the season. <laughs> That's for fans of the show. The broader implications are really how TV has changed. Everybody's signaling that this could be the end of appointment TV. This is the last blockbuster TV show of our lifetime. And that's because so many people would gather around that whole notion of water cooler talk. This is something that everybody watched and the next morning they were all talking about it at work. So let's start off with kind of a definition. What is appointment TV, Miranda? Well, I think you're being a little bit fatalistic about it if you agree with that assumption because appointment TV is just TV shows and programming that you schedule your life around. It doesn't have to be these big grandiose dramas like Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Mad Men. It can be things like, you know, 
Seinfeld and Friends, The Office. How many people watched Jim and Pam get married? They've been saying that the death of appointment TV is going to happen since 1999 when TiVo first came around and it made it so easy to record your shows, fast forward the commercials or watch them later. So this isn't a new concept that whatever is going to happen next is the death of appointment TV. They said the same thing when Netflix started streaming TV shows and Amazon Prime and all that stuff started happening. And that's the point, though. Things are changing with the way we consume stuff. Part of it is also that you do have to set your life around the shows and and make the time to watch it. Part of it is now with the way we consume it and have social media and everything is the spoilers. Right. If you don't watch something like a Game of Thrones on the night of, by the next morning, it's hitting all the news. It's hitting your social streams. It's your friend text chains yeah. are talking about it. I know you, you know, had to put your phone away during Game of Thrones yeah, on w- Sunday night. I went to a screening like at a little tiny theater house. It was super cool, but we're in the West Coast. We had to see it at West Coast time at 9 p.m. So for three hours, I oh, had to no. put my phone away <laughs> so that we couldn't see any spoilers. But This is all kind of with factors in now to this appointment TV. Back in the day, there were no spoilers like that. And now if you're not watching it right when something is airing, something as big as like a Game of Thrones or a Breaking Bad, even when it was going, you run that risk of spoiling everything. And that's what they're saying is significant about Game of Thrones. It launched the same year as Twitter. So people have grown up with this show in an era where live tweeting is common. So you don't necessarily have to do a big watch party with your friends and your family or whatever. You can live watch it with thousands of fans on Twitter and have in time discussions about what's happening. What did you just see? Oh, did you notice that? That kind of stuff. So analysts are saying that it's possible that Game of Thrones, if it were to premiere today, wouldn't have the same cultural impact that it had because of just the timing of it was really lightning in a bottle. Yeah. I mean, do I think it is the end of Appointment TV now that Game of Thrones is gone? No. I think there will be some other show that will capture the cultural, big cultural interests of a lot of people and people will want to watch it together and get those watch parties going. But the way we consume stuff is different now. You know, as a Netflix or a Hulu, these streaming services, they release seasons as a whole. It's the whole 10 episodes. So you don't get that incremental weekly buildup, that well, no, excitement. But then you have the two weeks where everyone's talking about and then it's Stranger over. Things or Dead to Me. And then it's done. I was in the hair salon on Friday covering my ears because people were talking about that Dead to Me show and I haven't seen it yet. That's part of this appointment TV thing. It's changing things. Whereas a week to week incrementalism, you'll watch a show on the streamers. It's a flash in the pan almost. And you never know when someone else is watching it. Think of the conversations you have. Did you see that Game of Thrones episode last night versus have you seen Dead to Me? Or where are or, you in Dead to or Me? Or where are you? you what know, just you, happened? You never know. You're not watching it in tandem with people a lot of times or you're just recapping a whole season of something to somebody. The streamers are probably going to have to adjust what they do. There's no reason why Netflix can't drop an episode of Stranger Things over the course of 12 weeks as opposed to one big, you know, it takes you a whole weekend to watch, but you're done with it. And then it's out of your mind for another three years. People just watch stuff differently. Think about also you go home and sometimes you're just not in the mood to pick up a new show Mm -hmm. or to watch something that's going to be involved with a lot of story elements like a Game of Thrones. You just want to watch something silly and something that, you know, that's why we go back to it all the time. That's why The Office is the number one streamer for Netflix. It's going to be interesting to see what that next big show will be. I think there will be one. Yeah, it might take a few years before it happens. But for now, a lot of people are kind of sad that this is done and they, you you lose that camaraderie with following along with these shows with people. When you think about the end of Game of Thrones, though, it's not over. There are at least, what is it, eight other Westeros 
themed shows <laughs> in the pipeline. So oh, just that's, they're just trying to capital, they're just trying to capitalize on whatever popularity they can at that <laughs> point. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.